Thanks so much, Dan. Take your Bibles, if you would, and look with me at Luke chapter 9, Luke's Gospel chapter 9, where we have been having a great study. I'm often asked to help people, almost weekly, find a church in their area. You know, people will call or email our staff or our office or, or my office, and they'll say, you know, I'm in such and such city, and I'd like to find a place where where there is some Bible teaching that I can trust and, and rely upon and grow in that ministry. And, and when we can find a place where, after some research, we can find a place where the, the pulpit is faithful, it's a, it's a wonderful relief. It's a cause for great rejoicing because I'm sure I don't have to tell you of the dearth of good, faithful shepherding, faithful teaching and preaching uh, across the country. But sometimes it's a dilemma because there will often be on the website of a church that they teach the Bible, that there's, they'll even use terminology to be familiar to us at Grace Emmanuel, like Bible exposition and verse-by-verse terminology, things like that. And it's a bit of a dilemma because when I, when I actually have read the doctrinal statement and done my research, I'll then download a sermon or two or three. And uh, it's, it's difficult because what's coming from the pulpit doesn't match the, the boast on the philosophy of ministry page and what they say about preaching. Sometimes it's uh, a touching on general Bible truths here and there, things you know that might be in the Scripture stated like that, or maybe you're not sure they're in the Scripture because they're just general principles, could probably be mixed in with a little common sense, and then some stories and illustrations to connect with real life. Or a list of principles that you know are somewhere in the Bible but don't seem to have a connection with the text being preached. Sometimes the point of a sermon is oceans apart from the passage that is referred to. And unfortunately this is a serious problem because over time churches have kind of gotten the idea, people have been comfortable with that and and gotten the idea that the Bible is is kind of a a self-help manual or or maybe a series of little vignettes, kind of a you know best case, worst case scenario survival guide kind of a thing, or 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 maybe it's just a, a pep talk to help you cope with your problems. Some eighty years ago now, or even further, Harry Emerson Fosdick wrote an article for Harper's Magazine with this question at the title: "What's the matter with preaching?" And it was really his answer that kind of paved the way for this shallowing up of church life. Evangelicalism has a love affair with shallow sermons, and it is the sentiments of guys like Fosdick that kind of grease the slide. Here's what he said in the answer to the question, what's the matter with preaching? Many preachers indulge habitually in what they call expository sermons. They take a passage from what Scripture and from Scripture, and proceeding on the assumption that the people attending the church that morning are deeply concerned about what the passage means, they spend their half hour or more on historical exposition of the verse or chapter, ending with some practical application and implications for the listeners. Could any procedure be more surely predestined to dullness and futility? Who seriously supposes that, as a matter of fact, one in a hundred of the congregation cares what Moses, Isaiah, Paul, or John meant in those special verses, or came to church deeply concerned about it? 
Nobody else who talks to the public assumes that the vital interests of the people are located in the meaning of words spoken 2,000 years ago, end quote. That was Harper's Magazine eight decades ago. I want to take you back to the mountain here where we pushed pause two weeks ago in Luke chapter 9 because this issue gets dealt with in what happens to Peter, James, and John on the mountain. This very issue gets dealt with, and I want to cover it this week and then, of course, finish next week at our communion service. It's going to be a real high point. You remember on the mountain when we pushed pause, there had been a revelation promised. You remember verse 27 of Luke 9. Jesus said, there are some of you here who aren't going to die before you see the powerful display of the kingdom vividly. And of course, six days later, I believe that the first installment of that vision of the kingdom happened to Peter, James, and John on the mountain. After which, they saw the resurrection, then they saw his ascension into glory, so they saw the exaltation, they saw the Spirit come in power, and they saw the gospel spread. So they saw the power of the kingdom on earth vividly, the first installment of which was right here on the mountain. So that was a a revelation promise, and it was stirring their hearts to bolster them for what was to come. You remember Jesus had just said, I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer at the hands of the people of Israel, and you, if you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself and be willing to suffer. So I'm sure at that point, they're on edge, big time. Well, then they got to the mountain, and you remember last time, we saw not only that a revelation had been promised, but a glory was previewed. You remember verse 29, while Jesus was praying on the mountain where he'd taken them, his appearance, or the appearance of his face literally, became different, and his clothing, along with his face, became white and gleaming. And then, along with him, as the flesh was pulled back, which was veiling who he really is ultimately in its full blazing light, there was with him standing in glory Moses and Elijah. You remember I said to you last time that that was the link, the prophetic link was proven. You had Moses, the first great leader of Israel, the mediator of the covenant between God and his people who would ultimately represent the ultimate mediator who would come, which would be Jesus. Plus, Moses was the one to whom the law was given. So you have the law being associated with Jesus on the mountain and his glory. The law points to Christ. Then you have Elijah. So all the prophets who pointed to the Messiah and a remnant who would be saved. Even though Elijah prophesied to an apostate Israel, he was now being linked with Jesus' ministry because there was a remnant and Jesus was the one that was going to save the remnant. So there you have a prophetic link and we looked at that last time as well. And they, verse 31, were appearing in glory, and this is what they were doing. They were speaking with Jesus about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They were talking about the suffering to come, and the resurrection, and the exaltation, the full redemptive package. They were standing around talking about it. And then I mentioned to you right at the end two weeks ago, that you go right from the prophetic link which is being proven right there on the mountain to this juvenile proposition, this juvenile suggestion by Peter. Notice verse 32, Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him 
And as the two men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then Luke writes this, not realizing what he was saying. Now, just for a moment, as I mentioned this last time, I just want to reiterate, some people have tried to rescue Peter's motives here, as if somehow he just wanted to perpetuate the worship on the mountain. Tabernacles is sometimes what some of your translations say. It just means shelters, portable shelters. It was familiar terminology before Solomon's temple was built. So from the time Israel wandered in the wilderness to the time of the temple, they had a tabernacle in the midst of God's people where God's presence dwelled as a visible demonstration that God was in the middle of his people, caring for them, protecting them. They were to worship him at the center of the community of Israel. So it was a portable shelter, and then when they wandered in the wilderness, they just took it with them. So it was familiar terminology with regard to their wanderings. It was also familiar to them with the Feast of Booths. You say, what is that? Well, after they came out of Egypt, they were delivered by God, protected by God, sheltered by God in the wilderness. So every year at harvest, they built these shelters... And they lived in them for seven days as a reminder during that celebration that God provided. They'd take food into the shelter. They'd live in the shelter, not in their home, not in the luxury of their home, but totally dependent upon God. That was the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. They were just portable shelters, and that's familiar terminology to the Jews. And so some have thought, well, maybe Peter was just trying to celebrate the deliverance and sheltering of God. But the text seems to give us really what's behind this strange outburst from Peter. Notice it says that he didn't realize what he was saying. Mark 9 verse 2 in this account says he didn't know what to answer. And the verbal ideas here indicate that he didn't didn't perceive the implications. He wasn't cluing in to the real issue. His mouth was moving, but he wasn't making sense. He wasn't thinking through the clarity of the moment. To give an answer was to reply to some experience. That's the verb here. So here was the experience, and he was giving a reply with his mouth, but he wasn't understanding the implications. We might say he was clueless, but he was speaking. He should have been quiet, but he was talking. Nervously talking. But he wasn't grasping the implications. He saw the majesty, but he... He missed the meaning of it. Say, what was the meaning? Well, just think about it. Remember last time? He's face to face with the majesty, the blazing majesty of Jesus. Verse 32 says, they saw his glory. What does that mean? What did it mean to them to see his glory? What did it mean to them that he pulled back the veil of his flesh and showed that the divine, unapproachable glory of God's holy character shined out of Jesus? It told them, first of all, that he is the almighty God and he does dwell in unapproachable light. I mean, he wore the veil of his flesh because he became one of us. But take away his flesh, you can't, as a sinner, stand in his presence and stare into his light. They knew immediately that was the case. Furthermore, he had Moses and Elijah there, so they're standing in glory. So now he knows this is the Messiah. Peter knows this is the Messiah. So if he has the power to accomplish all that the Messiah has been promised to accomplish, then we better love him, we better believe in him. It also immediately told him that he's the only revealer of truth. So if he promises light and life, then he's the only giver of light and life. He's the only revealer of truth. And we'll talk about that a little more in just a moment. 
I would also add one final thing that when they saw Jesus glory blazing and there's Peter, James, and John staring into it they must have thought right then as many times as Jesus has told us we're going to go out and be proclaimers of his word then <clears throat> he, we know now he has the authority of the universe he has the authority of God behind him so just like in the great commission in Matthew 28 all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth go and make disciples we can go we can speak we can preach doesn't matter the response some will believe some won't it doesn't matter we just proclaim he's the one who commissions disciples he's the one who is with them always he's the one whose message it is it doesn't come down to us They would have needed that, having just heard they're going to suffer. Moses, by the way, was there. He hadn't been around for 1,400 years. (laughs) Elijah was there. He hadn't been around for 850 years. And yet, God calls them from their perfected state of holiness in the presence of Almighty God, calls them from heaven to be right here with Jesus. They're reflecting the glory of Christ, having now been made perfect. They were appearing in glory. And Peter's hearing them speak about Jesus leaving, going to Jerusalem to accomplish his mission. Listen, beloved, that's a clear reference in Peter's hearing of the exaltation of Christ to the right hand of the Father. Moses says Jesus is it. Elijah says Jesus is it. Both of them are talking about his Jerusalem conquest, that he's going to die and he's going to rise and he's going to be exalted. That's their conversation. Peter's hearing it. James is hearing it. John is hearing it. So the proposal to build tabernacles for them is juvenile. It is naive. It's ridiculous. Shelters for what? I mean, I'm sure Moses, if he was allowed to speak, could have said to Peter, uh, you know, it's nice chatting with you and all, but I'm only here for one purpose, to talk to Elijah and the Lord, and I'm going back. I'll see you when you get home, Peter. Right? Right? It's, it's just really typical of humanity to look at circumstances and try to bring human means to perpetuate them or think we know the implications of them. Here's what it's easy to do, to listen to ourselves. This is why I'm so burdened by a church that won't come to the text but has somebody up there getting clever because he's listening to himself And you're listening to him. That's a problem. As we'll see. So there was a revelation promised and a glory previewed and a prophetic link proven in the episode and this juvenile idea proposed and then then an amazing thing happens. A divine voice is proclaimed. Look at verse 35. And while he was saying this, While Peter was suggesting this, a cloud formed. Literally in the Greek, a cloud happened. It began to appear. And it began to overshadow them, casting this shadow over the top of them. And they were terrified as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So this thick cloud suddenly appears. Don't imagine this is like the black clouds that formed this morning and came across the the lake in the middle of our state. don't, Don't imagine it's one of those ominous threatening fronts that comes through. 
Matthew's gospel describes it here as a bright cloud, and he uses the same word uh, describing what Jesus looked like when he peeled back his flesh. This is a radiant cloud. It is brightness. So they'd come face to face with the brightness of Christ's glory. They'd witness Moses and Elijah appearing in glory, and now this bright cloud engulfs them so as to completely stun all of their senses. I mean, this is stimulation, overload. And they were frightened. And they're about to become even more terrified. Verse 35 says, A voice came out of the cloud saying this, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Matthew's gospel includes in verse 6 of chapter 17 that when they heard the voice, they fell to the ground on their faces terrified so now you have the scene here's Peter, James and John in this mountaintop experience and their faces are to the ground and their mind is racing because connections are starting to be made see what kind of connections first of all the cloud the connection of the cloud their mind swept back to Exodus chapter 16 when the sons of Israel were delivered out of the hands of Pharaoh and headed into the wilderness, they're staring out into the wilderness and verse 10 of Exodus 16 says, the sons of Israel looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. There was this bright, visible cloud representing the presence of God going before them. By the time you get to chapter 19, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm going to come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you. In other words, when, you, when they see the cloud and they see you go and get engulfed in it, they're going to know I'm speaking face to face with my mediator, with my prophet, my leader. And then they came to the mountain. They came to the base of Sinai at the peninsula there. And they looked up at the mountain and Moses, Exodus 24 says, went up to the mountain. Here's what it says. The cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud and to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. There's the brightness. I mean, all they can see at the top of the mountain and Moses sort of gone now in the middle of it For six or seven days, it looks to them like the mountain is being utterly devoured by flashes and fire and smoke. It was the presence of God represented. When Moses would go to the tent of meeting, it's another fascinating thing. God said, put a tent up, it's going to be the tent of meeting. And Moses would go in and meet God face to face in the tent of meeting. Same thing, Exodus 33 verse 9. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And by the time they put the tabernacle in the presence of the, the land and in their community, Exodus 40 says that the cloud then covered the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled it. I mean, when you got in there, it was blinding, it was frightening, it was noisy, it was powerful. Fast forward to Solomon's temple, He'd built it, they'd prepared it, and now they're about to celebrate 2 Chronicles chapter 5. And you can read it in your own study from verse 1 and following. Everybody's there. The elders of Israel are collected there, called up to a particular role in the celebration. 
The leaders of every community of families is there. The heads of the households are there. The fathers of each family, they're they're set in motion to serve in the celebration. The Levitical priests are there and they're consecrated with all their priestly uh, garb and they're sacrificing. All their animals are being brought with them and the Ark of the Covenant is there and they're going to put it in the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple. And along the way they were sacrificing so many animals that 2 Chronicles 5 verse 6 says there were so many that you could not count them. They were just offering them and offering them and offering them to God in the celebration. The musicians were there. There was a massive orchestra. There were massive choirs. There were 120 priests blowing their trumpets to sound the beginning of the celebration. This is huge. And at the musical crescendo... In 2 Chronicles 5, they all sing in unison this one line. In 2 Chronicles 5, this is what they sing. His loving kindness is everlasting. And when they sang that line in unison, the scriptures say that the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud so that the priests couldn't stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Listen, Peter, James, and John on that mountain made the connection. God's presence has descended upon us. This is a profound moment. And they made another connection while their face is to the dirt. The voice. Because Isaiah the prophet in chapter 42 verse 1, speaking for God in the first person, God had said, this is my servant, the one I'm going to send to redeem my people. He's my chosen servant and my soul delights in him. And you remember at at Jesus' baptism, there he was coming out of the water and the Spirit descended on him. In Luke chapter 3, verse 22, the same voice. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Same voice, same comment. This is my Son, my chosen one. In you I am well pleased, he said at Jesus' baptism. What did that mean? Look. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Father is pleased with everything the Son does because the Son always does what pleases the Father. I mean, when the Pharisees accused Jesus of sin, he said in John 8, 29, I always do what is pleasing to my Father. Always. I've never done any different. And he said to them in John 8, 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? Name it. You say, well, didn't he break the Sabbath? No, he broke their 600 or so laws that they added to the law of God to make it easier to look like they were obedient. Jesus defied those little regulations in the Mishnah all over the place. He regularly said to them, that's not the law of God. That's not the spirit of the law. You're violating the weightier provisions of the law like heart change. You're putting on externals. Well, yeah, Jesus ignored that all the time because those were added to the law to make it easier for a Pharisee to appear obedient. It wasn't the real standard of God. He says, which one of you convicts me of violating the real standard of God? No one. Dan quoted it earlier, Hebrews 4.15. He's tempted in all things as we are, yet what? Without sin. I mean, that passage settles it. Somebody's wondering whether Jesus was perfect. He was tempted as any human being would be tempted in all ways as we are. In fact, even more fiercely because he never yielded and all of hell's fury came against him and he never said yes to it. 
yet without sin. And so the father said, I'm well pleased with him. And the next line is the key to all of it, beloved. Listen to what the voice said. Hear him. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. The idea isn't merely to go hear Jesus preach. The idea is to heed him, to bow to it, to obey it, to follow it, to bring your heart underneath it. When God said, listen to him, there are four ways you ought to listen to Christ. There are four implications from saying that that come from God's own statement here. Four ways that they would have been called to listen to Jesus right there on the mountain. Peter, stop listening to your own opinions. Stop listening to your own thoughts about this circumstance. Stop being frightened that Jesus said you're going to go to Jerusalem and maybe suffer. Stop it. Listen to him. Four ways you listen to Christ. This is absolutely critical. Number one, listen to him desperately. Listen to him desperately. God says, He's my chosen one. That is the equivalent of saying what he'd said at his baptism. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He's the one I've chosen. If I'm well pleased in him, then listen, he's the only one that can be your substitute. There is no other substitute. Because the substitute has to be someone that the father is eternally pleased with. He has to accept the sacrifice. I love what Isaiah 53.10 says. It pleased the father to crush his son and put him to open shame. And then the next line is this, Isaiah 53.10. If he would offer himself as a guilt offering for sin. And the rest of the verse says he'll get the spoil. So if it pleased the father to crush the son, then the son must have been pleasing in his sacrifice. How was he pleasing? He is the only one who brought a perfect life. You're not going to bring it. I'm not going to bring it. And listen, any other redeemer you might look to or guru or system of beliefs of human works isn't going to bring it. No other human system of belief can be your redeemer, your redemption. You cannot redeem yourself. You can try to redeem yourself by offering your good works to God. It'll be nothing. It'll be a zero on your scorecard. Only Jesus Christ brought perfect works, laid them before the Father, and the Father puts the name of his people on that list as if you lived it. That's the gospel. And when you come to Christ, you can't come to Christ and some other co-redeemer You can't come to Christ and to Mary or to Christ and Confucius or to Christ and Buddha or to Christ and your intellect or to Christ and your education or to Christ and your pop psychology or Christ and your own opinions. You can't. You can't do it. Listen to him, the Father said. Listen to him desperately. Come to him desperately. It is God that highly exalted him. Why? Because he suffered to the point of death. And if God accepted his sacrifice, then he's the only one that can reconcile you. And on the mountain, that's what God was saying to Peter, James, and John. Don't try this on your own. 
You say, didn't they always believe, already believe? Yes, they already believed, but they needed reminders. I mean, they goofed up all the time. I've been a Christian 33 years. I need reminders. I need the call to listen to Christ and Christ alone. Why? Because in my flesh are all kinds of would-be redeemers. And they vie for my attention. And so do yours. They vie for your attention. God was saying, listen to him. He is me. He is God. He is God of very God. He has the glory. He has the power. And he has the sinlessness. He can offer himself and him alone in a way that satisfies God. He's the only substitute. There are no other redeemers. Secondly, we are to listen to him comprehensively. Comprehensively, you say, what do you mean? Look for just a moment at John 17 when Jesus prays to his father. Look what he says here. John 17, verse 6. Jesus, as I said, is the source of all truth. Well, here he says it himself. Verse 6. Here he is praying and he's got his hands and his eyes up in that priestly representative gesture and the disciples are listening to his prayer and he says, Father, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. I took your truth, Heavenly Father, and I gave it to these men just as you wanted me to give it. It couldn't be flawed or Jesus would have sinned. He gave it exactly as the Father gave it. They were yours, verse 6. And you gave them to me, and they have kept your word, and now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. You gave it to me, I gave it to them, they now know it. How? Verse 8. Because the words which you gave me, I gave to them, they received them, and truly understood that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. There it is. You want to know what a true Christian is? He receives and listens to Christ's words, and in believing Christ's words by faith, the gospel of Christ, they now know that Jesus was sent from the Father. They know he's the Son of God. They know he's Messiah. That is the first litmus test of all true belief. What do you think about Jesus Christ? Is he God or is he not? Is he the Messiah or is he not? Now look back at chapter 14 of John, John's gospel. I'm going to show you the unbreakable succession here. The links are fabulous. John 14, verse 26. You can, you can just sort of start with verse 25. These things I've spoken to you while abiding with you. In other words, Jesus says, I'm with you disciples, and so I've been teaching you all these things. But the Holy Spirit, the helper, that's the word paraclete, and it means another who comes alongside you the same way I came alongside you. So when Jesus was with his disciples, he was the voice, he was truth, he was the source, and when he goes to heaven and the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit will be another of the same kind as Jesus. He will be the spirit of truth to his people. He's the spirit of Christ to his people. So when the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, notice that. The Father sends the Spirit in the name of Christ. There's the link. The whole Godhead is involved. And he'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So Jesus took what the Father told him, passed it to the disciples through the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's going to be disseminated to the rest of the people in written revelation so there's an unbreakable link. Look at chapter 15. You see the same thing. Taking it one step further, chapter 15, verse 26. When the Helper comes, whom I'll send to you from the Father... That's interesting, isn't it? The Father sends him in the Son's name. The Son sends him from the Father. 
So again, the Godhead is involved in all ways in the sending of the Spirit. Whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, so He's the Spirit who can only be a source of truth, who proceeds from the Father, and look at this, He's going to testify about me, and you're going to testify also, because you've been with me from the beginning. So here it is, the Father gives it to the Son, the Son gives it to His disciples through the power of His Spirit, personally and then by the Spirit to bring it to their minds as they write it down. It's an unbreakable link. Look at chapter 16, verse 12. I have many more things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. And when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He's going to guide you into all truth. He won't speak on His own initiative. In other words, this is coming to the Spirit from the Father and the Son. Whatever He hears, He's going to speak. He's going to disclose to you what is to come. He's going to glorify and honor me, that is to say, who I am, my work, what I say. And he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. And now backing all the way up to the Father, all that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said he takes of mine and discloses it to you. There's the full circle. The Father tells it to the Son. The Son gives it by his Spirit to the disciples and the disciples disseminate it as we'll see next week in the written revelation. So when on the mountain God says, listen to him, he's saying, listen to him comprehensively. Listen to him when he says he's leaving. Listen to him when he says he's going to send the Spirit. Listen to him when the Spirit comes through the power of the Spirit of truth and write it down and pass it because he said pass it. Listen to him comprehensively. Thirdly, listen to him exclusively. Exclusively. The Father said, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And you notice, even in the white spaces of that verse, there's no hint of even another person whose voice you should listen to. Beloved, listen, I've already said it to you. There are no other redeemers and there are no other sources of truth and I know what the tendency is. This is why it burdens me when a, when a church somewhere says on their website that they proclaim the truth. And when you go listen to the sermons, they, they ignore what the truth says. They, they put blinders on, the dimmer switches, they, they resist it with all their might, and they just opinionize and storytell and muse on general themes. And everyone in the audience gets slowly dumbed down. And here, God says, listen to Christ exclusively. There's no one else in the verse. I read it to you earlier. He's the the treasure, the storehouse of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians says. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. In him are hidden the treasures. Rationalism doesn't work. It's just opinions. Philosophy, esoteric questions. Look, if you're you're brilliant in philosophy, go ahead. Think about philosophical questions. But don't imagine that you're going to answer them outside of Scripture. This is what has happened to evangelicalism and scholarship and liberal scholarship all along in the history of God's people. They start asking all these philosophical questions, and when someone says, well, look what the Bible says, they, they say, oh, that's just ignorant, that's just naive, you're not answering the serious dilemmas. 
as if God had more to give to us and forgot to give it to Jesus, or he gave it all to Jesus and Jesus forgot to give it to the Spirit, and the Spirit got it all from Jesus, but the Spirit forgot to give it to the disciples. Or worse, some people believe they weren't inspired when they wrote, as we will see clearly shattered next week in Peter's explanation of this account on the mountain. Listen, you listen to him exclusively. You say, but I want to hear the voice of God. Read scripture. You say, but I want to hear him speak audibly. As Justin Peter says, read it out loud. (laughs) Right? Lastly, listen to him worshipfully. Worshipfully. This is my son. Listen, when God says that, it ought to make the hair stand up on your arms. This is God Almighty. This is my son. You and I have access to the throne of Almighty God through the son. This is not cause for adding my opinions. If I add my opinions, run. Run. Get out of here. Because you know what happens? Sooner or later, my stories and my illustrations and my opinions will start to appeal to your flesh. And then you'll think, I'm getting Bible teaching, but doesn't this feel good? And you won't notice after a while that I'm ignoring the force of a particular text and the point of the passage. You won't know that we're ignoring the counsel of God at certain points. And you will blissfully go on in ignorance and not see it. I had a friend this week, sweet friend, longtime friend, tell me, he said, look, for years, he said, I've loved the Lord, served the Lord, loved his word, but there are certain areas I've not wanted to look at and face. He just said, this last year, the Lord just continued to hound me and hound me and hound me by his spirit and convict me until I came to the place where I thought, you know what? In these areas, I'm going to stop this hardened stubbornness and I'm going to come back to the scriptures and say, Lord, if that's what you say, then I'm going to listen worshipfully. I'm going to listen with humility and in faith, I'm going to give myself over to it completely. I'm going to entrust myself to it, put myself at its disposal. And he said, when I did that, the whole area of my life just opened up. I suddenly, not with perfection, but with new refreshing direction, had victory where I'd never had it. That's faith. That's what it means to listen to Christ worshipfully. To humble yourself when you read Christ's words and you read the scriptures. To bring reverence in your heart to it. To believe it and submit to it. He's the beloved son of God, the chosen one. All glory dwells in him. I was reading to my wife this last week, J.C. Ryle's book, Are You Ready for the End of Times? You ought to get that. It's been republished. And in there, right right up front, he talks about what it's going to be like for those in the end who denied Christ and lived it up and had their fill of the earth and mocked the believing world. And when Christ shows up, he just describes what that moment is going to be like to those who have rejected Christ, who've not listened to him. It's a riveting six or seven pages you won't forget. It's the inimitable style of J.C. Ryle and his ministry. 
What an amazing voice from heaven to tell the disciples, listen to him. And so after the resurrection and after the exaltation of Christ, Peter has the opportunity to pen some epistles to the church. And in his second epistle, he gives an account of this. And some of you might be thinking, boy, I wish I'd been there on the mountain with him. Listen, you don't need to be where Peter was because Peter is going to say in 2 Peter that the moment the Spirit inspired them to write it down and send it to the church in written form, it is more certain, more established, more sure than even the personal eyewitness experience that Peter, James, and John had. If you've ever had somebody tell you that experience rules, or if you've ever been tempted to believe that experience trumps the Scripture, don't miss next week, because I'm going to show you from the Scriptures Peter's own words that a written revelation is more certain than somebody's telling of an account, even an eyewitness account, even an account of divine things. The written word of God is more sure and more certain just because of what the Holy Spirit did in giving it. So for communion next week, it's going to be a sweet time of just letting that passage sit on our hearts as we think about the work that Christ did on our behalf. So listen desperately, listen comprehensively, listen exclusively, and listen worshipfully to Christ and Christ alone. Lord, thank you for this morning this amazing narrative on the mountain. Of course they were terrified because they knew their own hearts. They knew how many times they'd argued with one another about personal human greatness. They knew how many times they'd failed you. They knew how many times they wondered who you were and even doubted that you were the Messiah. And having confessed that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, You told them of suffering and it must have frightened their hearts. And so you gave them this great testimony of who you are. Lord, you know hearts and minds that are here. You know all of us. You know that we we aren't perfect. We, as Christians, fail you. But we want to listen to you in these ways. Help us to do that. You know other hearts and minds that are here who who've heard this a thousand times or maybe for the first time this morning and everything in between. You know where they are and and Lord, I, I pray that you would bring such powerful conviction and ministry that it would frighten them like it frightened the disciples as to where they stand. Pour your love out on them. Pour your mercy out on them and your grace. Let them not tarry any longer. Hold them in your grip. Love them. Minister your grace to them as you have to us. Open their eyes. And Lord, as a church, may we always be faithful to these things, to listen to you, to preach your word, to explain it, to apply it, to think about its implications, to love it, to open its pages and read it and meditate on it. In the busy, fragmented, distracted world in which we exist and in which you've placed us, we find this challenging. Help us to learn how to do it and help each other learn how to do it. Make this place a beacon of hope rather than a place where deception and empty conceit rules. May we listen to you. 
We pray it for your glory and honor's sake. Amen. All right, I invite you to stand. If you're our guest and you heard Todd mention that there was going to be a little greeting time in the office center, we'll have some, some folks from our church there and I'll be there and I'd love to greet you if you've never been to Grace Emanuel or you've never been a, uh, at the reception and had an opportunity to greet the leadership. We'd love to do that, just find out what brought you here. So in a moment, you'll see the signs in the lobby. You can just walk through the lobby and then back this way and I'd be glad to see you over there. The other thing I want to mention is tonight at 6 o'clock, in our study of Genesis, this is absolutely radical because we're in chapter 39 of Joseph's life, and tonight we're going to deal with the one principle that keeps us faithful. The greatest and highest principle of Scripture that keeps us faithful. It's the greatest truth that holds you into a life of integrity, and we're going to see how it works tonight in the life of Joseph. It's absolutely amazing and thrilling to our hearts as Christians. So if you could be with us at 6 o'clock, join us for our study of Genesis.